You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 13th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. The member associations of Canada, Mexico and USA have been selected by the FIFA Congress to host the 2026 FIFA World Cup. This year, however, it's Russia and it starts tomorrow. My guests Samira Shackle and Quentin Peel will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including an escalation in Yemen's war, like Yemen needed such a thing, a potential end to the world's silliest diplomatic dispute, and seeing as how Japan still can't quite figure it out, at what age does adulthood begin? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Samira Shackle, freelance journalist writing for the New Statesman, Guardian, Al Jazeera, Deutsche Welle, Monocle and others, and Quentin Peel, associate fellow at Chatham House and contributor to the Financial Times. Welcome both. This time tomorrow, the final whistle will just about have blown at Luzhniki Stadium in Moscow, ending the first game of the 2018 World Cup. This is Russia versus Saudi Arabia, which most neutral observers will watch, wishing there was some way both teams could lose. This, in turn, will follow a doubtless splendidly vainglorious opening ceremony seeking, as did the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics, to celebrate and validate the regime of Vladimir Putin. Um, Quentin and Samira, both of you, are you, are you excited for the, the kickoff tomorrow? Have you sort of got your you know, national costumes, bought your face paints at the ready, your wall charts up? We're extremely excited. I've got both uniforms, kits... <laughs> I, 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 at this point, I'm going to reveal to listeners that I'm not actually sure Samira knew this was even happening 24 hours ago. Um, that's that's a reasonable assessment, I think that's isn't reasonable, it? Reasonable, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I knew it was in Russia. Oh, good, good, yeah. excellent, and, and and the ball's round. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but, I hear. so I hear. So I hear. Quentin. Well, I I was aware that it was happening. Well, uh, that's a start. I not only that, I've been reading a a few of the odds on who might win and who might lose and and it is pretty clear to me that the two sides in the opening game are go- both going to go out pretty fast I assume that this was fixed on the grounds that the only team that Russia could be fairly sure of beating in the competition might be Saudi Arabia but I gather that the Russians are actually 72nd in the world is their rating so it's a very strange thing that Russia should be hosting a game that is actually not that popular in the country. Very peculiar. You're going to be astounded when you find out who's hosting it in 2022, Quentin. Uh, um, On the subject of odds, I I am here to tell you that I think Australia are excellent value at 1,000 to 1, and I shall be be piling in on that in due course. But uh, I suspect trying to talk about the actual football is is going to be a struggle uh, for two of the three people at this table. So uh, we should talk about the politics. Uh, Samira, obviously, Vladimir Putin, as said in the intro, wanted this World Cup for Russia so he can make Russia and, by extension, himself look good. But is it actually a good thing for Russia? Because the thing is, when you invite the world's attention, you may actually therefore receive the world's attention. And it's it's, it's quite easy to, when one regards Russia under Putin, to form a... um, 
Well, a, a not necessarily obliging impression of it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's kind of two-sided, isn't it? But we know that authoritarian regimes the world over like pageantry. They like um, sort of big displays of uh, kind of national culture and wealth and all of those things for two reasons, partly playing to the domestic audience and having a chance to kind of um, encourage nationalist sentiment and celebrate the country and, and the regime by extension. And also uh, the idea of, of reaching an international platform, showcasing the positive things about your country. Generally, sporting events are a pretty effective means of soft diplomacy, as you know, you alluded to the Qatar um, hosting the next round of, uh, of, of the World Cup. And that, again, is a case of soft diplomacy, kind of stating uh, your place in the world, I think. Um, and for Russia, it comes after a really extended period of international isolation. Uh, but, you know, as you say, it can cut both ways and that kind of scrutiny uh, isn't necessarily always a good thing. But I guess the fact is it's, it's been a kind of long period of isolation and, and all these different countries and, and people are going there and experiencing Russia. So I guess from that perspective for the Putin's regime, it's a win. I mean, Quentin, is there any argument that all these countries shouldn't be going there? There was, of course, a, a widespread staying away from the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow, and that was largely a reaction to the invasion of Afghanistan. I'm not sure it's necessarily all that much better, the invasion and of Ukraine and annexation of Crimea. Was there an argument that people should have sat this one out? Well... This is a global sport, for goodness sake. Well, and so it, was the Olympic Games. Uh, yes, and that was in the middle of the Cold War. True. We're not in a second Cold War. Um, having said which, I mean, I don't think Russia should be hosting it. I think that's a sort of really bad decision that uh, that FIFA's taken. And yes, I do I can't happen, think why FIFA might have made it. I can't. And I do think that their decision to send the next one to Qatar Again, is... Again, unfathomable. Unfathomable. What, what, what possible considerations could have preyed upon their deliberations? Um, so that's very peculiar. Um, look, it's... I think probably it would play more to Putin Putin's sort of uh, narrative of Russia, the victimised nation, if people stayed away, uh, and therefore not necessarily be very helpful. Um, I think that the British, having made such a big deal about the poisoning in, in Salisbury and so on, were probably quite torn. In the end, of course, the British protest has been pretty feeble. No member of the royal family will be going, but Robbie Williams will be part of the opening ceremony. So um, uh, I, I'm choosing to assume the sending of Robbie Williams <laughs> as as Britain's protest. Uh, <laughs> um, Didn't he write that terrible song about Russia? Do you remember that he, he wrote he sort of just uh, in inverted commas satirical song about? Uh, it, it, it was it was yeah. terrible in both senses of yeah. the word. Yes, in that it was terrible <laughs> about Russians and it was also yeah. terrible. Uh, but I, I, I don't think he's going to be doing he that probably one. Won't no, perform that. no, a party uh, like a Russian. Uh, that was it exactly, <laughs> um, Samira. We did hear today, as we heard in that clip at the top. The 2026 World Cup has been awarded to a joint bid by the US, Mexico and Canada. That will, of course, be halfway through the second term of President Winfrey. Um, is, is, is this a good thing, that it's, 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 it's after the Russia and Qatar debacle, it's being sent to countries which are, well, reasonably respectable members of the community of nations? Yeah, I suppose so. And I think there was also the argument that in um you know, that there's a lot of the infrastructure already existing, uh, in particularly in the US where most of it will happen. Uh I think I, FIFA probably wants to um avoid further scandals and question marks, I would imagine. And, you know, it's not been 
kind of popular decision um, to, to hold it in Russia. There's ongoing kind of harrowing stories about the building of the stadiums in, in Qatar and the fact that, you know, the temperatures are going to make it basically impossible to play and all of these things. And that's coming and coming and coming. And I don't imagine they want, in the aftermath of these massive corruption scandals and so on, I don't imagine they want to continue having... Uh, these very obviously bad decisions and and more and more question marks going into the next decade. Okay. Well, finally, before we move along, uh, it would be remiss not to ask you both for your tips of who's actually going to win. So I'll ask ask you first, Quentin, who's going to win? I suspect it's going to be Germany, actually. It's becoming rather uh, inevitable. Controversial choice, Samira? I don't know who normally wins. <laughs> Brazil? Uh, Brazil's not a bad bet, and, and you're, you're receiving the enthusiastic assent from the production yeah. booth there of our Brazilian producer. Uh, so Germany and Brazil are, are your informed, uh, sagacious, and rigorously researched tips from our two panellists there. You can thank us uh, after you've won. Um, let's move along then to matters entirely more serious. Observers of the long ongoing war in Yemen have for some weeks been predicting an attempt by the Saudi-backed pro-government forces in the country to recapture from the Iran-backed Houthi rebels the key port of Hudaydah. Those same observers have also predicted that such an assault will be extremely rough on the 600,000 people attempting to live there. That operation now appears to be underway following the Houthis' refusal to meet last night's deadline for withdrawal. Um, Quentin, this would be the first recapture, as I understand it, of a major city from the Houthis. Would it therefore, if it happens, uh, represent present a turning of the tide. Yes, I think it might. Uh, This has been a dreadful war um, with appalling humanitarian consequences, which the Saudi-led coalition have been singularly inept and inefficient at actually prosecuting. It's been a very cruel war in terms of the the, uh, civilian casualties and civilian effects. Um, Will this change things? probably at an enormous price if they do. But I just don't believe that they have the comp- got the competence to do it. They seem to bomb the hell out of everybody and then never follow up. It's a very difficult country with horrendous terrain and passionate tribal loyalties everywhere. So it's a very complicated war to prosecute. I think that the rest of the world should be making a far greater effort to knock heads together and stop the fighting. Uh, Samira, have we reached the point with this war, as as I think often happens with with civil conflicts, at least if you're looking at it from the point of view of an observer, and it's a possibly slightly cynical uh, utilitarian view, but you just say that above and beyond all other considerations, the war should end, uh, which probably means that somebody needs to win, uh, and it's then just a question of picking who's the more likely victor more quickly, which in this case presumably is the government forces backed by the Saudis. Would it be that altogether a bad thing if they were to take this city? It's an interesting way of framing it, I think, because um, that, I mean, it's actually the kind of argument I think that the, that the Saudi-led coalition are, are kind of putting forward, which is that this, if they were to take this city, it would um, it would tilt the balance in such a way that the rebels might be persuaded to come back around the negotiating table. Um, and and you can, I guess, suppose you can kind of see the logic. It's but the as Quentin was just saying, the kind of cost of that I think is so potentially enormous. This is not just a kind of strategically important port city. This is also, uh, you know, the the, the argument for um, for. for Going for it is that, um, the, according to the Saudi-led coalition, arms are getting in that way from Iran. 
Um, but it's also a source of, you know, kind of lifeline to the country in the form of food and fuel and medicines. And this is a country where a huge, huge proportion are desperately reliant on humanitarian aid and are still, you know, you've got eight, 8 million people or something at risk of starvation and um, kind of uncounted numbers of deaths from malnutrition and, and disease and so on, on top of the 10,000 who've died as a direct result of the war. Uh, and so I think the fact that it's likely to be a kind of prolonged conflict to take this city back, the potential cost of human life is really, really enormous. Uh, Quentin, on that subject, I mean, there, there does appear to be very, very little doubt that, that, that substantial civilian casualties will be incurred in any attempt to take this back, especially if, as you suggested, the, 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 the Saudis uh, behave with the, the lack of competence and um, uh, discretion is not the word I want, a discrimination that they have in certainly in previous air operations. But is all of that an argument for not taking the city back at all? If you were trying to make a case to the Saudis, and I think we've established that the uh, well-being of civilians who are in the way is not uppermost among their priorities, is there any reason why they shouldn't do this? Well, I think the reason is that they uh, the actual cost in every way is too high. And it's not going to... I'm slightly contradicting myself. I don't think it actually will win the war in the end. The war is elsewhere. And the mm. war has been, you know, waged increasingly in sort of guerrilla fashion and so on. So it's it's just not going to prove anything. And it, the cost in civilian casualties and the cost in terms of getting aid through to all those civilians who are suffering enormous malnutrition, not to mention the cholera that is uh, in the country as well, that is an enormous price to pay. Uh, Samira, why is it, do you think, that the this world, ha or this war rather, has passed so... Um unnoticed uh, or ignored by, by the wider world. It has now been going on for slightly more than three years. At least 10,000 people have been killed and the number may be far higher, roughly two-thirds of those civilians. Uh, I mean, I understand that there are logistical difficulties mm. with covering this war, i.e. that it is incredibly dangerous and very difficult to get into or out of or operate within, especially if you are working for the Western press. But why has this one been able to stay so far under the radar? I think uh, that what you've just identified is a really big part of it. When you don't have those kinds of um, human stories and photographs and all of those things coming out at the same rate, then it, it definitely makes it kind of a harder sell, I think, in terms of um, the media and the ensuing public attention. I think there's also probably just the fact of timing that it came at the same time as the, you know, came while the Syrian war was in full flow. And I think there's probably limited attention amongst uh, much of the news consuming public in, in the Western world for kind of faraway wars, particularly faraway wars in, in the same region. And I think it's probably been uh, a bit of a victim of that in terms of the attention that's going on it coupled with the logistical problems that you identified um but, you know obviously it's a hugely hugely important war not just in terms of the fact that it's devastating in in its humanitarian consequences but also in what it tells us about the region and the fact this is effectively a kind of proxy war between saudi arabia and iran uh, so i think it tells us a huge amount about the dynamics of a kind of really geopolitically important region but again that's hard to explain i think and hard to sell when you've got um 
you know, and you don't have ground reporting in the same way. I mean, it has always struck me, Quentin, that one of the reasons that the conflict between Israel and Palestine receives so much attention is that Israel's actually, and indeed the Palestinian territories, are relatively easy places to report from. You can get in and out of them reasonably easily. Everything, you know, works in terms of infrastructure. There's lots of broadcast facilities. It's actually not that difficult, whereas somewhere like Yemen is difficult. But nonetheless, if... If the world's news organisations, especially the Western world's news organisations, had decided to go to the expense and the risk of covering Yemen in the same way that they would cover, say, Gaza, um, would anybody really be all that bothered? I mean, I'm talking about consumers of the news. I think there would be far more of an outcry. And I think that actually we journalists should be honest about this, that... The, the, the conflicts that get attention are precisely those conflicts where there are television teams that are able to go in and out. And it gives a completely distorted view, actually, to the real, real, where the real disasters are in the world. And you look at, actually, where those teams are. So in Africa, a quite disproportionate number of television teams are in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So you tend to get that covered and you don't get the same attention to, say, West Africa. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, Samira Shackle and Quentin Peel. Coming up next, has the world's stupidest diplomatic dispute finally been resolved? Climb aboard Monocle's June issue, where we take a ride through the latest in planes, trains and automobiles, drivers included, in our annual transport survey. But first we set sail in Spain's medical ship with its crew of doctors and nurses looking to help anyone waylaid by choppy seas. From there we hit a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet until we touch down in Toowoomba where one Aussie family is transforming the town with an international airport. Then it's on to the tour bus to see what life is like on the road with the band. Surprisingly homely if you're on a night train coach, followed by a quick stop to meet the journos on the front line of Brexit. Now it's time to get high with a whistle-stop tour of the new elevated parks popping up in London, Copenhagen and São Paulo, inspired, of course, by New York's High Line. Then we pop corks at Verona's Vinitaly, head to the hills for a spot of camping with mountain wear brand Amundsen Sports and its handsome team, and drop in at Marseille's oldest hardware shop, Maison Empereur, to stock up on, well, pretty much anything and everything we need. Monocle's June issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Samira Shackle and Quentin Peel. Now, for years and years and years and years, aficionados of asinine diplomatic spats have had a reliable perennial with which to replenish their enthusiasm for their hobby. This is, naturally, the fabulously idiotic fracas over what Macedonia may be permitted to call itself. To widespread bewilderment, Greece has been throwing a 27-year-long tantrum over Macedonia's insistence on calling itself self-Macedonia, affecting to be a feared that this implies a territorial claim to the portion of Greece also called Macedonia, even though none of my fellow New South Welsh people are plotting the annexation of Aberystwyth. Rather disappointingly, the dispute now appears to have been settled. Um, Quentin, uh, the Republic of Northern Macedonia, it's going to be, or Severna Macedonia, apologies to any Macedonians listening for my pronunciation there. Is this any less daft than the construct Phyrom? or former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, which Macedonia has hitherto been obliged to pretend to call itself. 
Yes, I think it is less daft than that. I mean, firearm, <laughs> firearm was a twenty-seven years, and nonsense. we've got to slightly less daft. Yes. Amazing. Um, I mean, you know, Northern Macedonia, so it's got a bit of geography in it, and it's got the name. And uh, as the uh, as the Macedonians are saying, actually, they're allowed to call their language Macedonian, and and uh, and the people are going to be Macedonian. So. Actually, they get quite a lot. And the Greeks, who, after all, are the ones who've been making all the trouble over this, uh, are, are reassured that it's not going to be Macedonia. And actually, the Greeks are saying what's most important is that the, those Macedonians, sorry, northern Macedonians over the border <laughs> can't claim Alexander the Great because surely that's what it's all about. It's where did Alexander the Great actually come from? And the chances are he almost certainly did come from well, isn't, Northern Macedonia. Isn't there a clue in the fact that his father was called Philip of Macedon? I'm remembering that right. Yes, but, but but the Greeks would like to say that's uh, the Greek bit of Macedon. I, I did think, I have to say, it was it was outstanding trolling when the Macedonians called their international yeah, airport Alexander the Great they've Airport. They've changed it now. I'm kind of disappointed yeah. by that. I, I was I was hoping Macedonia would just start naming things after Archimedes and and, and Plato. <laughs> yeah. and just just you know absolutely. And they renamed their highway, which I think was also named after Alexander it the Great. Was named but now after it's called. Friendship. Yeah, I know. It's it, it, I, I, which is less good objectively as a name, isn't it? It's less it, catchy. It is, uh, and 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 less funny. Um, yeah. As as <laughs> as listeners listeners may have discerned a certain uh, subtext in what I've had to say about this that um, I've I've had a, it sounds a, like you've taken sides. I've had an amount of difficulty taking this whole thing seriously. Uh, Samira, has this been a sensible expenditure of of Greece's diplomatic capital? Do you think? It's a very strange uh, dispute because it does seem, as you say, on the surface, so silly. But, you know, it's been... Uh, I think it once, just, you, once you look into it in greater depth, just, it still seems it's pretty sti- silly. It's still <laughs> silly, but it obviously makes people angry. It's not just a kind of... Um, you know, I, anyway, sort of initially was reading about this story and you think that must just be, uh, you know, like one guy in the sort of Macedonian <laughs> local government in Greece who's sort of angry about this. But actually, you know, it makes people really cross. There's been, just earlier this month, quite large protests on the in Greek Macedonia about it, arguing that Macedonia is is Greek. And there's still some... Uh, there's still some uh, speculation that, you know, lots of parties and the kind of nationalist side of things in Greece are not going to want to pass this once, it, you know, sort of agreed to this and everything. And that um, lots of people are going to continue being really angry and opposing it. So it's quite, um, it obviously is quite deep rooted. And it's kind of hard to tell because sometimes I think when there's been a dispute for, for three decades just the the fact of there being a dispute gets people into it. No, it'd be, kind of, they 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 become like one of those crotchety married couples who can't yeah. remember what they started arguing yeah. <laughs> about in the first place. But but, yeah. but damn it, they're not going to back down now. Yeah. Um, Quentin, did you ever get a sense of what the people in Greece and and as Samira points out, it it was, it was far from just being a cranky fringe preoccupation, but what it was that the people who were angry about this were angry about. I mean, they can't possibly, surely, have feared the Macedonian hordes sweeping down from the north and reconquering the homeland, can they? No, it's about history, and that's it's the real poisonous effect that history can have on a sort of... particularly when misused in a nationalist cause. And I think we do need to understand that the, the Greeks themselves have been through a pretty dreadful time in recent years. So True. anything that 
sort of played a bit or, or seemed to dent national pride um, wasn't taken well. So, I mean, I remember talking to a, a, a Greek journalist who's one of the very few who said this was a ridiculous uh, dispute, um, who was basically ostracised by the rest of the journalistic really? corps for daring to go against the, the national will. It is extraordinary. Um, we should stress that this is not unbelievably a done deal just yet. There will be a referendum in Macedonia later this year, so the people of Macedonia have to sign up for this. So there's, there is some opportunity for mischief. And it also has to be ratified uh, by Greece's parliament. And there are Greek politicians who are far from happy about any use of the word Macedonia yeah. by Macedonia. Um, so, Samira, what, what, if, what if this doesn't work? What if this collapses? Are we going to go another 27 years well, on probably. this? Probably. Probably. Although uh, I think that the those Greek politicians who, are, who won't want to vote to ratify it are probably in the minority, so it's likely that it will get through. Uh, and it does seem like people just want an end to it. That's definitely the impression I got from hearing the statements by the Macedonian, North Macedonian and Greek um, <laughs> northern, <laughs> leaders. Northern Macedonians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, finally uh, to Japan, which has just created a semi-generation of new adults. From 2022, Japan's age of adulthood will be lowered from 20 to 18, the first sh- first shift rather since the benchmark was set in 1876, though the voting age was lowered from 20 to 18 in 20. 2015. Keep up, there'll be a quiz shortly. However, Japanese 18-year-olds will still be relatively constrained, measured against their Western counterparts. They will now be able to marry and apply for passports and credit cards without parental consent, but they will not be able to drink alcohol, smoke or gamble until they're 20. Um, Quentin, shouldn't Japan or indeed any society just pick a number and decide that's where it starts? Before that, you're not an adult, so you can't do adult stuff. After that, knock yourself out. I think they probably should. It does actually bring home to one quite how conservative a society, Japanese society, still is. Mm, indeed. But, um, you know, basically people we would regard 18. I mean, we're we're pretty close to the level of saying, let's bring it all down to 16, I think. But, um, you know, the fact that an 18-year-old couldn't do all these things without parental permission, uh, I wouldn't like to have faced any of my children at the age of 18 <laughs> and said, you bloody well do what I say. I mean, the, the thing that strikes me uh, that they may have forgotten here, Samira, uh, that when you're 18, 20 just seems an eternity away. Yeah. When you get to a certain point, which I will confess to having reached where two years feels like something that happened yesterday or will occur yeah. next <laughs> week. But when you're 18, well, two, I mean, it's... it's Proportionate, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is yeah. proportionate. It is literally a tenth of your life. Yeah. You're 18 and you're being told, sorry, you can't have a drink for another two years. Yeah, and also what's the point of making the, as you said at the beginning, of, of, of changing the adult age if you can't do half the stuff. They're I mean, also expecting people to get married at 18 sober. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> have a wedding and can't have anything to drink. It'd be terrible. But also not being allowed to smoke, but being allowed to kind of take a bank loan. It just seems really weird in terms of the responsibility that it requires. I mean, maybe there's health grounds on that, but it does seem very kind of censorious that the things that are not allowed are kind of alcohol well, well, smoking gambling oh and also adopting children that wasn't allowed at 18 either yeah i don't know that i have a problem that with. one's fine yeah isn't it? <laughs> that one's fine i mean basically i i think it's also a thing quentin with with, with ages of consent is that you, you you tend to think the older you get the further up they should come i mean i i basically think that the the vote should not be extended to anybody um below the age of 45 uh, <laughs> at, at this point it's a matter of 
responsibility? Do you give people responsibility and therefore trust them? It's it's a curious thing because we saw the the voting age reduced in Scotland at the time of the Scottish referendum to 16 and it brought a tremendous engagement of sort of 16, 17-year-olds. Mm. On the whole, so You're though, saying this like it's a good y- thing. <laughs> well, on the whole, it is the younger voters aren't turning out to vote mm. and so grumpy old Andrew... And now Andrew, you're saying that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> grumpy old Andrew doesn't want you to have the vote. Um, I think that uh, we've got to be realistic, and I think 18's a perfectly good and and sensible age. I suspect a lot of 16-year-olds don't want to have it. But in Japan, I think the biggest stress seems to be that they're not going to be able to have the good party that they always had age 20 because they're all doing Mm. their exams when they're 18. Also true. I mean, Samira, do do you think that it's likely that the age of consent or the age of adulthood, is it, is it likely to get lower or higher generally? in current, Because it, it has been weirdly amorphous throughout mm. time. Yeah, it's an interesting question. As you say, it's kind of changed, hasn't it, that uh, sort of things like marriage being older, particularly for women, used to be much more acceptable to, you know, they didn't have, that, you know, those kinds of ages of consent and things like that are a, a protection as much as a limitation in some senses. So yeah, it's difficult difficult to see because it, it's very indicative of societal trends. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Samira Shackle and Quentin Peel, thank you both for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, reduced by Lamichi Okamoto. Our studio manager was Cassie Galpin. Music next at 1900, The Entrepreneurs. More on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.